0: are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants. The free market, voice
2: free market voice
0: of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country.
2: Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host. Gary Rathman, You know, it's happening again. It's happening again. You know, we, we kind of forgot about this, but you remember about a year ago, I think it was almost exactly a year ago, we were talking about Cliven Bundy. Remember that guy out in Nevada? Uh, the Bureau of Land Management were going to take all of his cattle and throw him off the federal grazing grounds that... Him and his family have been on for 100 years or something like that, all in the name of the protection of the desert turtle in Nevada. I mean, we saw the videos. Remember that? That was a big deal because you had all these federal agents out there, all these vehicles, all these assault rifles pointed at Bundy, his family, and... All of his friends and acquaintances that showed up, hundreds of people, individual American citizens, showed up on their horses and in their cars and on foot to confront these federal agents. And if you go back and, and look up the video, go back and, and see what was reported on the news at that time. They were threatening to shoot unarmed Americans threatened to shoot Americans that were armed, but did not have their weapons drawn, had their hands up in the air, to throw them off the property, and they wouldn't back down. Citizens didn't back down, but the Bureau of Land Management agents did. Now, it's been about a year ago, and we haven't heard much over the last year. The Bureau of Land Management is still going after him, albeit in a little bit different way. They're trying to track down those people and charge them with threatening the federal agents, but Bundy kind of shot himself in the foot, no pun intended, with some of his comments to the press during that time and after the federal agents backed down, and he made some pretty insensitive comments and said a few things that probably shouldn't have been said. That being said... This last week, a gentleman by the name of Ken Adderholt in Harold, Texas. He's got 1,250 acres that run along the Red River, which is the border between Oklahoma and Texas. Now, his family was deeded this property. He has a deed for this 1,200 acres from 1941, I believe, or something like that. It's been over 70 years. And state of Texas deeded this property to Adderhold's family and, consequently, him. Bureau of Land Management showed up, told him he had to get off their property, that that deed was invalid, and they were going to take 660 acres or something like that, and that acreage included his home, his house. Now, this is a little bit different than Bundy, although it's similar. It's a little bit different in the sense that Adderhold has a deed, has a deed to the property. Nobody has told him why they're taking the land or trying to take the land. Nobody told him what they're going to do with it. None of that. They just came out, told him to get the heck off, that's their land, that deed is not valid, and uh, we're going to take 600 acres. Now, this is brand new, Uh, so we we haven't got any updates on it yet. We don't know where it's going, that kind of stuff. But I wanted to bring it to your attention because several reasons. One, we have listeners in Texas, God bless them, and we have listeners in oklahoma god bless them they're close to the uh, issue there but you and i need to be involved in this he has a deed he wasn't leasing grazing rights from the federal government like bundy was although i think bundy still has a legitimate claim but he's got a deed his family has had this deed for over 70 years it's passed from one generation to the next and for those of you that have listened to me for a while know that I believe that individual property rights is the only thing that protects our liberty without individual private property we have no liberty now, I went back and looked at the video from uh, Bundy a year ago, and a question came to mind in light of listening to Democratic presidential candidates at their debate this week. question I had was, would those federal agents have backed down if the American citizens weren't armed? What if they had no guns? What if all they had was sticks and stones to throw at the federal agents? Would the federal agents have backed down? Don't know. I'll be honest. I don't know. I don't think so. The fact that those Americans had guns persuaded the federal agents that they didn't want to be at the wrong end of that barrel. The only reason, the only reason they backed down was because we were armed. Those Americans had weapons. So those of you that listen, like I said, you you know how I feel about private property. And when the rule of law is not being upheld by the government, the only thing between us and And tyranny is what we can do to protect our private property. Now, the government, we know this. We know the government, especially on the progressive side, wants to take away all guns. It only makes sense. Only makes sense. If you listen to presidential candidate Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders in the debate this week, they said that. only makes sense. This is terrible. Everybody wants sensical gun control. How are they going to do it? A year ago, I said they're going to tax the crap out of ammunition. And they have done things to make ammunition scarce. But now they got a new tactic. A new tactic is making the gun manufacturer liable for crimes committed with guns. That will put the gun manufacturers out of business, and you won't be able to buy guns anymore.
0: Is Bernie Sanders tough enough on guns? No, not at all. I think that we have to look at the fact that we lose 90 people a day from gun violence. This has gone on too long, and it's time the entire country stood up against the NRA. He also did vote, as he said, for this immunity provision. I voted against it. I was in the Senate at the same time. It wasn't that complicated to me. It was pretty straightforward to me that he was going to give immunity to the only industry in America. Everybody else has to be accountable, but not the gun manufacturers. And we need to stand up and say enough of that.
2: Now, do you think that will prevent people who want to break the law from getting guns? Of course not. Of course not. They, they, want, they, they don't care about breaking law anyway so what's breaking one more law to get a gun when nobody else has one so that's their plan that is the way they're gonna get around eliminating the second amendment rights it's up to you and I you and I to stand up for private property we need to stand up with and for the Arterholt family down in Texas. It's easy to say, well, that's in Texas, and I'm in Vermont. I'm in Ohio. I'm in Wyoming, somewhere else. It's just a matter of time. If they get away with it in Texas, they'll get away with it where you are. They did not get away with it in Nevada. And we haven't heard anything about them grabbing land for the last year, have we? Now they're trying it again. And you can say, well, they're good people. They're just carrying out their orders. You know what? No, I don't think so. I think you have to have a certain screw loose to work for the government in that capacity and willingly, knowingly violate individual rights and try to confiscate private property. I'm not talking about eminent domain. That's a whole other subject, which I don't agree with either in most cases. But this is just simply a land grab down here in Texas. They want to take this man's property. And we know what their attitude is. These candidates, both on both sides, Republican and Democrat, very revealing when you listen to, to what they say in the debates up next i'm going to tell you the absolute worst place the worst place in the united states to buy a lottery
0: ticket we'll take a look at that next an economy of one with gary rathbun Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You want to know the worst place in this country to buy a lottery
2: ticket? At least right now. Maybe more places later. But right now, the worst place to buy a lottery ticket? Illinois. Illinois. There's a story uh, out this week that talks about a gentleman who won the lottery in Illinois. $250,000, $250,000, won the lottery. What did he get? Got a nice little note from the uh, state of Illinois' uh, lottery commission saying that they have lowered the maximum lottery payout to 600 bucks. $600. The state's in such bad financial shape. They also announced that they're skipping or postponing or putting off, I guess postponing is the word, a $560 million retirement fund payment for November. Oh, and by the way, December isn't looking too good either. State is broke. State is absolutely broke. Now, they did hire... um, budget guru to the tune of $30,000 a month in salary and uh, that person immediately suggested the state implement any buddy in Illinois who won more than $25,000 in the lottery couldn't immediately be paid so this gentleman won $250,000 and got 600 bucks. $600. Now he'll probably get 600 a month for the next 200 years or something, but state's broke. State is broke. Now, that being said, we're broke. The rest of the country is broke. According to Treasury Secretary Liu, November 3rd, That's the beginning of the apocalypse. That's when the United States is out of money. Now, you remember, I have said for months, months, that we're running a deficit that no one is counting. We have not increased the national debt by more than a dollar since mid-March of this year. So that's over seven months the national debt has not gone up a penny why not because we hit the ceiling and so legally which is laughable for me to say that legally the Treasury Department was not allowed to raise additional money by issuing debt so they just didn't where would the money come from well they had a little bit in cash Not much, but a little bit. And they use what's called extraordinary measures. Now, what are extraordinary measures? Extraordinary measures means they're taking money from other cookie jars in the government. One of the big cookie jars, federal employee pensions. They're borrowing money out of the pensions. Now, they are projecting that November 3rd, they're done. They're out of cash. Um, No more extraordinary measures to tap into. We're broke. We're absolutely broke. Now, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. In the dark of night, Congress is going to raise the debt limit. Now, there are people out there, that are tired of this scenario. They're tired of having more than one conversation about raising the debt because it involves cutting back on spending. Every time Congress has to raise the debt limit, conversation is out there about cutting back government spending. And the progressives in the media don't like that. So we're starting to hear people come right out and say, Why do we have a debt limit? It's senseless to have a debt limit because, one, Congress always raises the debt limit, and two, it doesn't really mean anything. We're tired of the threat of shutting down the government due to debt. Now, think what would happen. Think what would happen. You've got a Congress that has one... Overriding thought. One thought. What's the thought? How do I get reelected? That's their thought. And they have determined that the only way to get reelected in this country is to buy votes. And they buy votes by giving away stuff. We've seen that in the debates. Look how many of these candidates want to provide everything free from college, advanced degrees, to housing, to forgiving loans, to more everything. I want to give it all away. So imagine that attitude with no bottom line, meaning they can spend all the money they want, and no accountability, meaning nobody's keeping track of the debt. Imagine that scenario. We will be Venezuela. We will be Zimbabwe. We will be the Weimar Republic eventually. Not right away, take a while, but we will get there. Coming up, Dr. David Whalen, provost of Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, will be joining me to talk about liberty in the educational system. You don't
0: want to miss that. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Dr.
2: David M. Whalen. He's a member of the faculty at Hillsdale College, one of the few colleges in the United States that does not accept any federal funds. He currently serves as provost and professor of English. Dr. Whalen, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. You know, Hillsdale College is near and dear to our hearts on the show. I talked to several of your colleagues and we mentioned your programs and the newsletter and primus and that kind of stuff often and it caught my eye uh, your letter in the Wall Street Journal the other day talking about essentially the Department of Education doesn't recognize Hillsdale College as existing
1: that's, uh, that's right. And, uh, of course, they would say we do recognize it as existing, but um, because we're independent of federal funding, they'd rather not pay attention to us.
2: <laughs> you know, give us a little bit of history uh, of that for those of our listeners that aren't totally familiar, but you've been around for a long time.
1: <laughs> that's right.
2: And uh, the, the big thing is the, the connection to federal and state
1: funding. That's correct. Uh, Hillsdale was founded, in fact, in 1844. Uh, So we were around something like 135 years before the Department of Education even came into existence. Um, uh, We have a a long and and distinguished history, but we have never accepted federal taxpayer dollars. Uh, And and this is because we all know how purse strings work. Mm -hmm. Uh, With funding comes control, and we are an independent institution of higher learning. And uh, we value that independence. We don't want to uh, subordinate our teaching to the dictates of uh, a governmental uh, body or any external body, for that matter. And and uh, so we, we refuse to take government grants and even indirect uh, sources of funding, such as guaranteed student loans. And that puts us on the outs in a bit. It seems
2: like, though, from what I have heard, I've had friends and family go to Hillsdale College. We've got kids of our clients going to Hillsdale College, you don't seem to lack in people wanting to go there. Oh, no. No. You have a lot of people want to go to Hillsdale College.
1: We do. A lot of people know about us. A lot of people want to come here. Um, I'm afraid more people want to come than we have room for. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, we do get a lot of applications uh, where we are a well-known institution. Uh, but again, there are those um, who would prefer to ignore our existence. Right. One
2: of the things in all of your literature and your self-description, you talk about a classical liberal arts education. Explain that to us a little bit, because. When we hear the term liberal arts, it kind of has a different connotation today than the classical
1: liberal arts. Right. That's a that's a very good point. Um, It's it's worth saying classical liberal arts education because uh, many people associate um, uh, the phrase liberal arts with some kind of uh, frivolous and superfluous. Um, dalliance with things that don't matter and in fact a in the classical tradition in the great tradition of liberal education uh, it is a study almost exclusively of things that matter more than anything else, things that are urgent and, and perennial and deeply human and uh, persistent. So the, the the big questions, the great questions: What is the good? What is man? Um, what is God? Uh, how does one organize one's political and corporate existence? Um, uh, what about liberty? What about freedom? What about uh, fate and and providence? And so you see what I mean. The mm-hmm. the uh, mm-hmm. the great ideas are. The foundation, they, they undergird a classical liberal arts education. And those are ideas that are um, they they never cease to be compelling and and urgent.
2: With that description, you're really going back to essentially the founding fathers of mm-hmm. uh, values, morals, education that started this country to begin with. Well, that's exactly
1: right. in, in fact, at the time of the founding, the only higher learning there was, was what we now call liberal education. Um, uh, that is outside of um, uh, practice, uh, apprenticeships, in the crafts, and the trades, and things of that sort. If one was to be learned, uh, one was to study these kinds of things, and the, the great patrimony of, uh, of thought in, in, uh, passed down through Western civilization, it's mm-hmm. certainly not a monolithic patrimony. These, these great minds are, are deep in argument with each other all the time. But nevertheless, uh, you you study that great inheritance of thought. And by the way, it includes the natural world as well. Um, uh, uh, Newton, Einstein, you know, you you, you study the great thinkers uh, and the natural sciences too. And, And what that does is it equips you to understand how the world really works, what things really are. And that's, frankly, the best preparation for life. I I often argue with with people who think that liberal education is some kind of frivolous excess. And I say, well, it's in fact the most practical form of education there is. Mm -hmm. And there's a great deal of experience that bears that out.
2: You know, one thing I've noticed in the people I've talked to that have graduated from Hillsdale and, and their kids and their parents and that kind of stuff is the ability to objectively think. And we talk about that a lot on the show that, you know, there's so much everything is subjective today. And, and that's part of the I think part of the Department of Education reason for, uh, I guess, snubbing you and and other institutions like you, if, if that's the right term, is they want some subjectivity in the reporting.
1: Well, well, you, it's 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 an interesting thing on many levels. Mm-hmm. First of all. Um, it's very possible that there was no intentional snub, and yet that is more telling and revealing in a in a painful way than if it were an intentional snub. Uh, that is the it it it's a kind of presumption that Title IV schools constitute what in the uh, technical language of, uh, of the department is the universe of schools included in their scorecard. Now, think of that language. What does that language imply or suggest? Um, uh, the universe of schools in the scorecard, are Title IV receiving institutions, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the, 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 um, the suggestion is we're just taking for granted that legitimacy and government dependence are the same thing. If you're not dependent on the government, you're just not legitimate.
2: You know, I think that's an excellent observation in uh, looking at Hillsdale College and other institutions, other publications have ranked you and rank you very high, like the Princeton Review and Kiplingers and that kind of stuff. But you get really high marks regarding your professors, regarding the the accessibility of professors, the community service
1: of the students, that kind of stuff as well. That's right. That's right. Uh, we we have nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to our uh, rankings and um, our standing in the academic community. U.S. News World Report, Kimplinger's Princeton Review, others rank us very highly across all kinds of measures. You know, the, the, the interesting thing is because we are not scurrying around administratively worrying about compliance to federal um, Mm. uh, regulations all the time. Mm -hmm. We actually uh, this will sound cliched perhaps but it's really true. We in fact, get to focus on doing what we do superbly. We we don't have to distract ourselves with compliance issues. We are focused on education. And so we we look at what the students are experiencing uh, on the academics, even in the social uh, life that they lead here. And we're working very hard all the time with our eye on that ball. We are not distracted by other things.
2: We're talking with Dr. David Whaling, Provost, And professor of english at hillsdale college in nearby hillsdale michigan just a couple hours down the road for us one thing that i've talked about many times and and i went to college way back in the early 70s and back then it took us about four years to get a four-year degree and so many times i see in colleges today taking five six plus years Mm. To get a four-year oh. degree. I had a client right now who has their their daughter at Hillsdale College, and mm-hmm. she's going to come out with a four-year degree in four years. Good for her. Very and, good. Is that kind of the norm for Hillsdale College? I mean, is it is the the degree stretching out a little bit everywhere, um, or just it, in some of these other institutions?
1: No, it, a four-year degree is very much the norm here. Uh, there are a number there are circumstances in which it's um, uh, Perfectly uh, appropriate and, and predictable even that someone would take a little longer.
2: A couple of the things I wanted to touch on sure. before uh, uh, we run out of time, something else I didn't realize until recently, Hillsdale College is also uh, getting
1: involved in K through 12 education. <laughs> That is correct. Um, uh, first of all, Hillsdale for 25 years now has operated a private K-12 academy uh, right oh. here on campus. And it's a, a terrific school. We just celebrated the anniversary of Hillsdale Academy. And, and uh, we have been helping a lot of other private schools with curriculum um, uh, mentoring of teachers that sort of thing uh, for a long time but in the last several years we've launched um, a very aggressive program to assist um, uh, fledgling charter schools Mm -hmm. around the country uh, uh, with a classical curriculum again we are are helping them organize and and uh, while the schools are 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 not owned and operated by Hillsdale College at all they're they're, they are um, uh, run by the the boards and the chartering organizations in their respective states. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless um, they get to uh, as it were certify that Hillsdale College approves of their curriculum if they do these sort of things. The the, the way the president of the college likes to put it um, uh, pithily he says we we have an agreement with these charter schools uh, if they agree to do what we say, we agree to tell them what to do. Uh, so <laughs> that's what, what, a terrific line. It really is. Um, uh, so, of course, it's not as as um, uh, uh, simple as all that. What it really means is that they turn to us for counsel as right. to curriculum and also pedagogy. How best to te- you know? How do you teach a third grader? Right. It's a mystery to me.
2: We've been speaking with Dr. David M. Whalen. He's the uh, provost and professor of english at hillsdale college one of the few colleges in the united states that doesn't accept any federal funds it's just a couple hours up the road we're going to put everything on the website and keep up the uh, dialogue dr whalen thank you so much for joining us and for giving us uh your time today mr Rathbun. it's been my pleasure thank you thank you we'll talk again up next buying stock at piggly wiggly Is that a good idea?
0: Maybe. We'll take a look at that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
2: I came across a new idea this week that I think is uh, actually not too bad of an idea. It could go awry, of course, but how would you like to go to your grocery store? Be standing in the checkout line, pick up a Butterfinger, a National Enquirer, and maybe some Coca-Cola stock. Sound interesting? I think so. There's, There's a new service out there. Uh, there's a broker dealer called uh, Stockpile, and their idea is to essentially have gift cards that you can purchase at the counter that is for stock. So you can uh, can buy your groceries and you get twenty five dollars worth of Berkshire Hathaway stock if you like fifty dollars of coca-cola. of Apple stock. Sound like a good idea? I think it is. I think it is. It'll take a while to work out the kinks and make it smooth, I think. But this company's idea is to put these gift cards into all kinds of retailers. Office Depot, Kroger's, Piggly Wiggly, I'm sure. That's a grocery store down south. Um, Giant Eagle, Lowe's all that and and allows you to purchase a gift card for the purpose of shares of stock now some of the fees to this are a little steep I think it's uh, 4.95 per card that goes to stockpile but that's not too bad Uh, It is at a $25 gift card, but at a $100 gift card, that's not too bad. And, you know, one of the secrets to building wealth is not looking at it every day. Now, reminds me of the old days when grandparents, parents, whatever, would give the gift of savings bonds. Remember that? Remember that? you get a little envelope, and it had this really cool computer card-looking kind of thing. There was a United States savings bond, either an E-bond or a double E-bond or an I-bond, something like that. I bought them for my nephews in years past. Now, several years ago, the government decided they were going to save a ton of money by not issuing the actual bond anymore they're issuing a digital bond well let me tell you at christmas time when you give your nephew a piece of paper that says you own a bond and here's the registration number very anticlimactic let me help you i liked looking at those bonds they were official looking they were colorful and they represented a future value and I had a bunch of them as a kid. When I, when I went to school, we we used to buy stamps. Every week, we'd buy these stamps and fill up a stamp book. And then you'd turn in that stamp book, and you'd get a savings bond for it. Very cool. And I had them for a long time. I eventually cashed them in to help with college and other things. But it was cool. But that kind of stuff has kind of gone out of fashion in recent years. Well, now... This might be a way of rekindling that type of saving for a generation or two behind you go through the store checkout you pick up a $25 card $50 card $100 card I haven't haven't seen all the information on it I don't know what the limit is I don't think you could buy a $10,000 card at the checkout You might be able to um but it allows you the equivalent of a fractional share or a whole share of a stock for that card. You essentially get an account at Stockpile and you can start accumulating stock. Now, when I was very, 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 very young, many, many, many years ago, my father allowed me to buy some stock. And that led to a lifetime interest in companies, in analysis, in annual reports, in the market. All my life, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. But through that whole time, I was constantly looking at stocks, looking at the paper, looking at my shares, reading reports, that kind of stuff. And you got to remember, this was back before the Internet. You had to actually go to the library and uh, look up value line reports and that kind of stuff. Remember those? I mean, it was all analog. We didn't have any of this digital stuff, but it gave me that lifelong passion, that lifelong interest in finance and the markets. And I think my dad knew that, not that he didn't want me to become a doctor, but He had a passion for stocks and bonds and investments and business and finance. A very, very, uh, very good entrepreneur and, and role model for me and my brother my whole life. So I think this is a good idea. I think it will get kids interested in the economy, get them interested in investing and accumulating, watching those stocks go up and down in value. A lot of lessons to be learned there are the transaction fees and stuff a little high yeah a little bit but you pay for convenience and you can't go to any other brokerage firm and buy $25 worth of stock just can't do it you get a fractional share and nobody will set up an account for you for doing that so four ninety-five per gift card if all you're doing is buying a $20 gift card yeah that's a little bit steep not bad but a little bit but you're paying for convenience paying for the convenience and the lessons you're passing on to future generations so keep an eye out I think it's a good thing I can see me doing it I can see me buying a coca-cola share of stock for each one of my nephews or Uh, a share of apple stock for each one of my nephews i could i could see that happening getting them interested in following it on a daily basis and looking at their portfolio and and maybe even encouraging them to put their own money into something like that so uh, keep an eye out i i think it's a good thing i don't know if piggly wiggly will have them or not i just like saying the name but i'm sure they will uh in their stores I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathbun.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: This is our country.
1: The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC registered investment advisor.